idea here is to say, what is the center of Christianity? What is this thing all about? What is the center of the problem of, you know, that we're facing and the solution? And I'm afraid that coming into it, we might uh, presume that we know or are in some way agreed upon the problem. Um, but in fact, I think that, that it's precisely what it's all about that we need to establish. Is it all about going to heaven when you die? Or is it about redemption of all things? Uh, is our life about an interior struggle, and primarily this subjective struggle? Or are we, in fact, attempting to combat sin or evil even on a larger scale. And so I think that we've minimized or we've limited the, our engagement with the world, with reality, because we failed to grasp the holistic nature of the problem and the solution. But why is that? And I think part of it is because we've uh, defined the problem in such a way that it's only partial, and so we've given the solution only in partial terms. And so we often, uh, you know, picture sin as uh, an original sin, and then redemption as dealing with an original sin. But that, in fact, what, uh, what we end up with are a lot of abstractions and the tendency is to get lost in the abstractions and details in theology. And that's, that's the danger about theology. In other words, we could just jump in and start doing a systematic theology. But where are we going with this? Where, where are we headed? And I'm afraid sometimes we don't say. Uh, sin or the problem is usually several steps removed you know, from the beginning, usually we would begin with the prolegomena and the arguments about God, then we would begin with the doctrine of God, the authority of Scripture. Uh, and then several, you know, you know, chapters in or lectures in, you would come to the problem of sin. Uh, but my point of beginning here is that there is a presumption that our understanding can be made to fit an already up and ready scheme uh, about how we know and how we know God. And uh, I think that's a mistake. Uh, and you probably already understand that in my definition of sin, uh, that it is a holistic problem. So we, ha we almost have to begin uh, that sin is not primarily about the wrath of God. It's not primarily a future punishment, uh, but that it's, uh, we're focused on sin and death. But even there, we haven't said exactly what is sin. Uh, and there would be a variety of things, you know, original sin. Do you all, everybody know what original sin, the idea of that we're in some way born with, uh, we've inherited the sin of Adam so that even in our conception that we've inherited this original sin just by being human. Um, and what that is or how that works, I think, is a mystery. For I mean, that's the way that from Augustine on, uh, they're going to talk about an original sin, but even then it's not clear. How is it transmitted? Is it sexually transmitted? I mean, literally they're going to sometimes talk that way. And if we mystify the problem, uh, then we're going to mystify the answer. Uh, and in this, you have an exchange between, as you know, between God the Father and God the Son that tends to leave out the human situation, the world as we have it. So is there an infinite debt through an infinite offense of an inf infinite proportion calling for an infinite penalty and an infinite payment. Uh, a lot of infinites there, right? And we are not infinite. We are finite. And so that sin and salvation in, end up, uh, ex the, the whole picture of the exchange in traditional theories of the atonement primarily 
and Anselmian theory, you end up excluding finite human categories. That everybody, you look puzzled, Christian. You understand what I'm saying? That I think so. So that we sin, but actually the the category is in fact that uh, our sin causes God's honor to be impugned. How so? Well, in an infinite proportion, because to take away from the honor of God is to, you know, obviously is in infinite proportion. And then we are indebted then. We create a debt. But how can we pay a debt that is itself of an infinite proportion? We cannot. So you set up this whole economy in Anselm in which there's an infinite exchange between the Father and the Son uh, that only the Son can pay off this infinite debt. Uh, And this is a well-recognized problem. It's becoming more recognized. So there's been a a kind of shift. There's been several theological movements to say, yeah, that's not adequate. And one of those, perhaps the best known, is liberation theology. Uh, And liberation theology is a turn then away from these abstract, objectified categories to say, well, no, as Christians, we really need to engage real-world categories that people are being oppressed and that we need to actually deal with that. Now, there's a, a variety of liberation theologies. I don't mean to but I, I think the early liberation theology, and at his, as it has developed then, unfortunately has had the same, or, or rather it's, it, it's swung to the opposite pole, and so there's a kind of disconnect uh, between how the oppressed or the poor are in fact, in a real world sense, redeemed through the cross of Christ. Early liberation theology was involved in a lot of the liberation movements in South America, where you literally had, you know, priests and nuns involved in violent revolutions overthrowing oppressive dictators. But the problem is, well, you overthrow an oppressive dictator, and what do you get? You get another one. And maybe Haiti is the fine illustration of that. You know, you had Papa Doc and then his son, Baby Doc. And then the liberation theologian, his little Jesuit priest, Aristide, came in. He became president. He was worse than either one of the guys that preceded him. So uh, while one might ad- s- uh, agree that liberation theology has identified a problem, that we do need to bring our faith to bear then on real-world Issues because that's what's happening in the New Testament, and when we turn to the New Testament, uh, but it has tended to perpetuate the problem and even to give way to violence. It's a question. So the uh, uh, so is homartiology what we just talked is that is that the the whole stealing a little bit from God and then Jesus needing to come to repay that is that homartiology? No, homartiology is just the doctrine of sin. The stealing of the honor is... Uh, That's Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm, okay, okay. And the reason I... There is a lot of other theories of uh, uh, atonement and why Christ came. Mm-hmm. But as you know, uh, Anselm is writing in 1100 AD. And so that doctrine is long after the New Testament. If you had if you had to identify why the shift, you know what, and what was the shift? What was the belief in the early church prior to the shift to divine satisfaction? I thought you got you, Chris, uh, Christus Victor, Christus Victor, which um, you know we could go through and talk about origin and. Uh, some of this turned out to be fairly crude in its depiction, but what they are trying to do then is to illustrate what is in fact there in the New Testament about the defeat of Satan, 
the overcoming of the principalities and powers. Uh, and what they mean by Satan, don't get in mind with Satan, a kind of, uh, you know, transcendent or otherworldly figure, because what the early church meant by Satan was something on the order of what you read in Revelation. That, no, it's the, the, the beast is the one who occupies the throne, that it's a real world ruler. And so uh, Rome itself, or the emperor, uh, was Satan's representative. And of course the problem is that when Constantine, the emperor of Rome, has a vision in which he sees the cross of Christ and becomes himself a Christian, whatever, you know, whether that's authentic or whatever you think about that, it's hard to say he's the devil. And so my point would be, yeah, you get a different atonement theory by 1100 A.D. because the situation of Christianity has entirely shifted. But we have to go back and, and look, is a Constantinian development uh, and the theories of atonement that develops from that and the theory of sin, and that's what we're dealing with specifically today, is that an adequate theory? Because what you get as a result, is that in the New Testament, the original idea of sin is that it's systemic, it's holistic, it's inclusive of everything. Wait a minute, the system itself, in many people's estimation, uh, has become Christian. So we get, you know, that's why people can talk about the United States as a Christian nation. That is a, Christ, that is a Constantinian notion that the state and the church in some way emerged and that there is such a thing as a Christian nation-state or a Christian state power. And of course, my response to that would be, well, no, there's only, and the New Testament is that, no, the church is the only uh, city, people, you know, the word nation's not there, but uh, or the word culture, but I think we could apply all that because the language is kingdom, city, the lang all the language that they had to talk about a kingdom is applied to the church. Uh, so another way that people approach sin uh, is to define it etymologically. So often at this point in a, in a class on theology, they say, okay, what is, what is the etymological meaning of you know, hamartiology? Well, it means missing the mark. Well, that's interesting, but it suddenly you're going to, even in your, you know, first of all, you never come to an understanding of something through etymology, right? Through the history of the understanding of the word. That's an illegitimate. Not to say that we can't look at the etymology and say, oh, yeah, that's interesting, but that is not definitive for us of we don't come to anything through etymology. Or the there are passages that we'll talk about sin as lawlessness. But is it enough to appeal to one or two passages or to etymology to define the category? And I don't think it is. I think that we, uh, in these limited understandings, the narrative of Scripture, which is all about the fall of man and the entry into sin, has been bypassed. This is my setup. For, and this is my justification for beginning where I'm beginning. I'm going to give you a definition of sin, but what I'm trying to do in my definition is not do etymology to not limit it to one or two places, but to give you a picture of the way that sin is depicted uh, in throughout Scripture. Step one, sin is systemic. It's systemic, and we could say in the same by the same token, it's holistic. And what I mean by this? Well, in John, sin or darkness will constitute itself as a cosmos, as a world that is separate from God. Is there such a thing? I mean, think about this for a minute. Is there even the possibility of something being constituted separate from God. It's an you know, at some level it's not possible other than 
in and through human rebellion. In other words, it's human categories that allow for the possibility of an alternative system, right? So it will be talked about in terms of the principalities and powers, that they've fallen, that they're in rebellion. We'll have a picture in uh, of the law of sin and death, so that's not only sin isn't just missing the mark. Oh no, sin is a law unto itself. It is a system. Uh, it is a logic. And uh, m- many people say, oh no, it's not logical. Well, in some level, at an ontological level, yeah, it's it, there is something missing here. But nonetheless, the wisdom in Paul is depicted then as itself a barrier Human wisdom is a barrier to the wisdom of God. These things function on an alternative plane. Human wisdom is not on a continuum with divine wisdom because the very nature of human wisdom is that it would imagine that it's self-constituting and that it uh, in, is you know, uh, autonomous. So by systemic, I, I mean that it's we can constitute everything in this system. Now, even as I say that, there is the sense that, well, we live in reality, we live in God's world, and I don't mean to exclude that. I'll come back to that. But the point is, yes, but we can misconstrue that reality so that we've actually created an alternative reality. Stop me any point. All right. The next thing. So how how can we have an alternate reality as humans if we are created by God? You know. So mm-hmm. from our very roots, we are. Right. So how can we? How can we have a? a how can it? Yeah. How, and, and so can um, can we live? entirely free of the truth of the fact that we're created by God. And I'd say no. That in some way, just the the fact that we're, you know, the the human condition is such uh, that all sorts of truth is going to impinge upon us. You know, the truth that if you jump off of high buildings, one tends to get flat upon landing. Uh, we can arrive at many truths and many much of reality. But can it be the case that we take those truths, those small t truths, and put them together so that they cohere in a system that is itself deceived? Mm-hmm. And that's that would be my point, is that um, there is, you know, you can go a, on a long a long way toward apprehending truth. But in my understanding, and I'll I'll make the case in the Old and the New Testament that this is the way it's depicted, that nonetheless those truths that are just there as a part of our created reality can be brought together in such a way that they support a lie. I did this a little bit last week or two weeks ago, or last week, when I told you the story, I I told you this story, let me tell you a story. And I began with theology, and I said, well, I'm telling you a true story, but I'm telling you the truth in order to lie to you. And then, you know, I I don't think I ever, at least in my understanding of the depiction of theology I gave you, that um, that understanding is that were appealing to real-world historical facts. But I left out something. And that is, you know, what's left out in that story is that uh, the way that theology is often depicted is as a perpetual fall, a perpetual, you know, we never attain. And so I use other stories. So I think that when we talk about Satan quoting scripture, we talk about... Oh, he doesn't just appeal to falsehood, but he appeals to truth 
in order to deceive us. Now that this may sound fairly simplistic at this point, but your question, of course, is the key question. And it's, your question is a wonderful question that you could spend the rest of your life studying. Um, and this, to my mind, is the major departure between a Thomistic understanding and the understanding that I'm advocating. You know, who, who would... Uh, in a, you probably know that what I mean by a Thomistic understanding, and they would answer your question, well, obviously that the created reality is such that we can come to God on the basis of this created reality that truth is just there for us in creation. What I'm saying is, no, I think that, and this is actually my second point, is that sin is a self-deception. That there is a deception at work. So that you can have an abundance of truth. You can, and, and this truth may in fact impact your life in a good way. I think truth always does. But my understanding is that in our rebellion, in our being attached to the first Adam, in some way the first Adam stands over and against the second Adam. So, if you buy into a Thomistic system, which is not just Catholic, it is, it is the predominant understanding, even of people who don't know that's what they are. What they're usually doing is they're positing this idea of a shared understanding, a shared logic, a shared reason, uh, that we, we can begin theology then on that basis. What I'm saying is, no, we can't even begin there. We can't begin with the traditional arguments for God, a traditional prolegomena, because our condition is such that even the prolegomena, even the arguments for God, can be made to uh, support the wrong God. I think that's precisely what has happened in scholasticism. There, I'm not saying those arguments are completely lacking in truth, but I think in the end what they do, they give us an image of God that is more of the God of Aristotle than it is the God of the Old and the New Testament. But that's just a, that your, your question, Christian, um, is the big question. Well, then what about, you know, the truths of this world? The alternative would be, you know, you would probably find many people, but m many less than what would f would fall into a Thomistic understanding. But maybe Karl Barth would be one of the prime uh, theologians who would say, well, no, actually, the analogia entis, or the idea that uh, there is a parallel to the truth of divine revelation, is he says of the Antichrist. This is precisely where we're on. I'm, this, this is enough, important enough. I'm willing to land here for a while if you're unhappy with anything I'm saying. No, I think... Yeah. And, and what I'm saying may, in fact, seem just improbable to you. Apart from divine revelation. In other words, I think that, that our problem is so severe that even to recognize the condition that we're in outside of Christ requires salvation. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can understand the condition of sin apart from salvation. If we've misinterpreted sin, then we're ten our tendency will to misinterpret salvation. Okay, the second thing, so sin is systemic, and then it's a systemic self-deception. And that's the picture in Genesis, certainly that man, when man falls, he's deceived. But I think that's the consistent picture in both the Old and New Testament. I'll, I'll lay the scriptures out for you, but let me take my word for it momentarily. And uh, um, that nearly every time uh, that sin is mentioned, deception is mentioned. That, unfortunately, is a big chunk that gets left out. Is that 
is lawlessness or missing the mark. You know, that didn't quite capture the nature of the problem or the predicament. And so in the garden, you know, the self-deception consisted of two parts, that you will not die, that it had to do with man's basic ontological condition, you know, the belief that we are innately immortal. That would be a way of taking what Satan said and making it true. There'd be many ways of taking it and making it true, but of believing a lie. Uh, it has to do with ethics. The, the knowledge of good and evil uh, is, uh, in fact, you know, if you practice the ethic of good and evil as we have it in Genesis, is that ethic going to lead you to the good? Or is that ethic, in fact, grounded in evil itself? Let me state it differently. This is the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer depicts the early chapters of Genesis. He says, when man became an ethicist, this was a sign of the fall. Well, that's an odd thing to say. You would think when he became concerned with ethics that, that that's a good thing. But the point is, no, his concern for ethics means, in this instance, that he becomes the arbiter, or we become the arbiters of good and evil and so that the ethical ground is no longer in the word of God but it's in human uh, autonomy in some way uh, Sigmund Freud is going to say the same thing in a different way that man's conscience his sense of morality is his immorality now again this may rub you the wrong way because, wait a minute, I know what good and evil is, but think here in the New Testament. The people that were the best people, I mean, they were the best ethicists. They were the most religious. They were the most sophisticated. They were the teachers. They, what did they do when they met the Son of God? Well, they killed him. I think that's not a one-off problem, but that's always our problem. It's precisely in our morality, and when morality reaches its heights, that we're in danger of becoming most evil. Mm -hmm. Because then, in, whether it's in the name of our religion or our nation-state, or our, uh, then we do evil with abandon. Because we imagine we do evil that good may abound. Right? Uh, that evil becomes a means. So that's, all of that is there in the self-deception. Let me just add a note here. As I'm defining this, understand that I'm also going to be redefining salvation. So step one, if sin is systemic and holistic, so is salvation. Right? It's going to have to be systemic. It's going to have to be an alternative epistemology. Uh, it's going to have to be uh, an alternative ethic. By the way, that's not the way ethics usually gets taught, right? Thus, there is very little sympathy for nonviolence in the church or in, in a majority of the church because the very nature of ethics is such that it cannot accommodate that non-utilitarian understanding. Um, in the garden, you know, knowing was a way of being. You establish your ontology on the basis of your epistemology. I take that to always be the human problem. That in some way, and knowing here, don't think of, oh, studying real hard to no, I mean knowing in a Hebraic sense of just the human uh, experience inclusive of human knowing. So that when we talk about salvation and we talk about the truth of Christ, the truth of Christ is not just one more truth. Oh, here we have a nice philosophical truth or a nice religious truth even. No, I believe the truth of Christ is constituted as a truth over and against a lie. Thus, revelation is key because this is a truth that we cannot attain because of our own deception.
we are deceived. The only way to get this truth, if you're in the darkness, is if the light penetrates the darkness. And that's the picture in the New Testament. Um, so if we're self-deceived, the only way out of that is, is through uh, the, the truth of uh, uh, an alternative system of truth. This self-deception, and this is my next set, sin is a system, it's systemic, it's systemic self-deception oriented to death. Um, clearly, that sin brings about death and the two are connected, but why? Can we say why? And I think we can. The, the natural fruit of the fall of man is death because that's the orientation. You won't die. You'll be like God's knowing good and evil. And so clearly what we mean by death is not just your heart stops beating and your brain stops functioning. But what we mean by death is, I believe, those things that unfold in the early chapters of Genesis and in the Old Testament, that death is connected to shame. Shame is exposure to the you know our uh, mortality and uh, to the reality of the human situation and this then gets to the very next thing it's oriented to death through a death denying identity in other words how is it that jesus can say he who would save his life shall lose it well because the very nature of his self-salvation system is such that he would kill himself by creating a great tower, by building more barns, by cons you know consumption of something. That we have all these ways of saving ourselves by sacrificing. By you know, just think of all the religious systems, all the economic systems, all the systems of this world. I believe can all be described as salvation systems self-salvation systems are these things effective no they produce death that they produce death and violence and are oriented to death and so when we say oriented to death when we in the talk in the new testament when we talk about life and love and being in christ that's the background against which this is portrayed and makes sense um, and thus, I, I agree here with one theological tradition, that is that he's equating pride, human pride, with the center of the problem of sin. But I've said, what I've given you so far gives you an idea of why pride. Because pride is precisely the system of covering up shame. What is shame? Shame is what it feels like to die. Uh, I don't, you know, you're, you're not going to go to your own funeral. You won't show up. You won't be there. You're not Tom Sawyer. You know. <laughs> uh, so, do we experience our own death? No. At some level, we we're not there because it is the final separation, but. My understanding is that shame is what it feels like to die. Have you ever experienced shame? Of course, we'd all want to say, no, but I knew somebody that did. Because it's so shameful to be ashamed. Mm -hmm. So we cover up. Shame is that powerful. It's that terrible. This is a strange thing that is secular psychology is discovering. And strangely enough, it gets left out of most theology. And yet it's just pervasive in the Old Testament and the New Testament. What did Christ do for us? He bore our shame. He bore our shame and death, you know, in, in his own dying. And so pride and shame are always on an axis. That pride comes in the wisdom literature before shame. What is the result of leaving shame out of our theology? That the focus has been on guilt, and the the what I'm setting up for you is 
an alternative to that system. What you have in guilt, that guilt is defined primarily in terms of the law. So what does it mean to be guilty? Well, to be guilty means you've broken a law. You know, if I was speeding and I was guilty of speeding, I can go pay my fine. It hasn't, I'm okay now. If our sin condition is simply one of guilt and Jesus has paid the fine, the doctrine of divine satisfaction, I'm okay now. You know, uh, no harm done. Uh, we're, uh, I'm okay, you're okay. Uh, so what I'm setting up is then a completely uh, alternative system to uh, the notion that law is definitive of the atonement. Did Jesus die to meet, you know, simply to meet the requirements of the law? That's the way we, we get this stated to us, like it's, you know, like that's the New Testament doctrine. Well, if you understand, and there it may mean, depending on what you mean by the law, if by, you know, the law you mean uh, the Mosaic law, or you mean, you know, uh, you know that the, you have Christ dying for a very finite, delimited sort of reason. And that's the problem with guilt. Guilt, you know, you can be guilty. I'm kind of guilty that I ate too many brownies tonight. Uh, or today. I'm not talking about you, Trent. <laughs> I didn't see how many brownies. I will yet. tell you that, that is his at least third brownie today. Oh, <laughs> okay. But the the danger is that you'll turn from guilt to shame, and shame is the much is a much worse condition, right? That shame is that thing that says I want to. I could just die. Uh, I want to run and hide, or or at least hide. Um, that it's, you know, where guilt is, is something we kind of own up to. Shame is completely incapacitating. Shame is, you you know, in Japan, when you lose face. Oh, if you lose face, that means you lose yourself. Uh, you lose everything. Uh, so that's the difference, is that with the traditional understanding focused on guilt and sin then defined as lawlessness or simply lawlessness or missing the mark, then salvation becomes uh, a resolution to that legal problem. And it's not holistic, it's not systemic, it's not all-inclusive. What I'm describing is a system that is inclusive of everything, but most especially human subjectivity. That in our pride, you know, pride is not just sticking your nose up in the air, Pride is the uh, identity that we would have outside of Christ. So it might be many. There might be many kinds of pride. You know, I, when I was doing this research, one of the, I, I, uh, a lady at Nottingham said, well, women don't really experience pride like, you know, that that's not really a female problem. You think that's true here? why women wouldn't like why why would women not experience pride I don't know I, <laughs> I, have, a, I have a very narrow perspective on this but what I'm what uh, yeah I what do they experience this thing differently than men oh maybe I don't know but the way that I'm defining pride here is not just arrogance is not just uh, you know haughtiness but I'm describing pride then as an as a identity, an identity to cover up shame. But I think that identity can take many forms, and so that that would be my answer. Is well, it may be very different between men and women and how we do this. I'm sure it is. It may be very different from culture to culture how you do it. You know, you can be proud and be the lowliest servant. In a culture, you know, in Japan, people identify themselves. It doesn't matter where you are in the hierarchy, whether you're the janitor or the CEO, 
nonetheless, your identity is connected with being Japanese. And I think that is, that's what I'm saying about pride. Pride is, uh, is a system. It's, it's an identity that we can have. So, and of course, this is why humility is going to play such a key role. Humility is not a virtue in a Greek understanding or in, in any other understanding that I know of other than a Judeo-Christian understanding. Why would humility be a virtue? Well, if you understand that pride is in fact caught up in a kind of false system, a false understanding of self. And then the, the end of this. So I've got sin as a, system, a systemic self-deception oriented to death through a death-denying identity and the next thing which refuses God and his word. Uh, that is that in the original fall, the turn to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a turn away from God. But I think in, it, that will always be the case. That it is a turn from one word the word of God to another word, the word of man, so that God's word and man's word stand opposed to one another. Now again, that's over and against a Thomistic idea of these two things being on a continuum. I just think in the way in which we are constituted that we are such, uh, we are so constituted in language, we are by definition language users, that language per se is connected. I'm not saying that language is fallen, but in our fallenness, that the word of man is going to be very much caught up in this false identity. And so, in salvation, the word of God is going to be an alternative to the word of man in every sense. And I mean this psychologically I mean it ethically I mean it across the board so that thing that's happening in your head you kind of screwed up in your head why is that I think that we can trace that in part as a kind of turn to language human words as containing an essence a presence that in fact it cannot contain. And if you're familiar at all with postmodern thought here, this is precisely what they're saying. Is human presence to be found in human language? Are you present? I think, therefore, I am. I am thinking, I am knowing, and on the basis of my thinking and knowing, I have my being. That's Rene Descartes, and that's the lie. Such a brilliant lie, and such a neat form. Huh? Wouldn't that be just the same lie as Adam and Eve? I think it's the same. Epistemology. Yes, yes, the epistemology to establish the ontology. I noticed Joel Olstein has a new book out that says something about I am. I would be a little suspicious. Wait, he, is he saying I am as Joel Olstein? I don't or? know what. I didn't read the book. I, I just noticed the title in passing, going from the history section to the philosophy section. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sure there's more to the title, but I just noticed you know I am is in the title. I think that's the health and wealth gospel. I think that's the the problem of human pride. I think that's the uh, the that's the reason Descartes is such a, a neat. I don't think he's the progenitor of this problem, but he's certainly given us a neat articulation of an already existing problem. That's why I I do I think that modernity, in fact, is not such a distinct period. Uh, as it's often pictured. I think that modernity is simply more of the same. It may be a different manifestation of that. Um, the book on Joel Osteen. It says, when you go through the day saying, I am blessed, blessings pursue you. When you say, I am talented, talent follows you. I am healthy, health 
heeds your way. I am strong. Strength tracks you down. So it's also the mind over matter, which is a whole other issue. I am healthy. I am strong. I am... Yeah, that doesn't sound like Christianity. That sounds like the devil incarnate. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe he's a really good guy at home. I don't know, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, the... the, uh, the And again, that's not... Oh, uh, I think we can picture this as being a peculiarly modern problem. This is Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor has written on this in a very sophisticated way on, you know, the sources of self. And he does then trace the beginnings of individualism and the rise of, you know, the kind of uh, turn from groupism to individualism. And in no way would I uh, say that's not the case. But I think there's a lot of different ways to do I am thinking. And the Tower of Babel, is that corporate? Oh, certainly it's corporate. Uh, it's groupist. But is it any less the same problem than what we're describing in which human words then are made the essence and presence of being? It's always that. This is, this is the brilliance of somebody like Jock Derrida. He says, there is no presence in human words. In fact... And this psychologically, psychoanalytically, you know, are you present in your words? You know, think of Freud's day of babysitting, throwing the the child. Is the kid really got his mama in and through playing with the spool? No, mama's gone. There is no presence to be had. But can we say about uh, divine words, God is there in the Logos. And I think that's the significance. And that, so that's what I mean, that there is a re- rejection of God's word. But understand, with that, there is a rejection of everything divine. That's not just a partial rejection. And the way, then, that we reject divinity is not just intellectually, and this is the last section, through an actively destructive set of practices uh, which feed a self-binding desire. And think here then, if sin is a set of practices, I would say that by contrast, salvation will also be something we practice. The feet of self, what? It, uh, actively destructive practices which feed a self-binding desire. So, think here, you know, desire, what does desire desire? Desire desires desire. In the end, what desire would be is a life force that in fact is not a force for life, but is uh, a force for death. Um, Another way of saying this in Freud, you know, the death drive is the drive to escape the death drive. Uh, the compulsion to repeat, you imagine that if you compulsively repeat the same thing over and over, you'll eventually attain a different outcome. Um, So you can describe this in many different ways, but the point is that the pursuit of salvation through this compulsive desire is precisely the thing that's killing you. And so when the New Testament will talk about death, that's what it means. It doesn't, you know, when Paul says, I sinned and I died, or it says the day that you eat of it, you will die. It's not talking about your passing away in some, you know, physical sense simply. But it means that you begin this compulsive form of desire. You take it up. And in its very nature, it's death dealing. All right, that's my that's my introduction. the uh, The way that we could the last thing you know the the way that we could contrast what this self binding desire. Well, that's what the lordship of Christ is all about, and the fruits of the spirit. That 
they are also going to be put on through practices that are over and against then uh, the sin system. So sin is a systemic self-deception oriented to death through a death-denying identity which refuses God and his word through actively destructive practices which feed a self-binding desire. Now you could probably add to this in some way. I, I would hope that you wouldn't subtract from it. In other words, let's not, let's not say, oh, uh, let's not narrow sin down to a one-word definition. Let's not uh, uh, make it as, I'm afraid we've been way too simplistic. All right, any, I'll stop there if you got any. Um, I think what might be helpful for me is if we spend time talking about shame and what actually is shame because it's not something that our culture ever talks about. Um, well, you're, you're, yeah, again, your, your question is a good one. What, what is shame? Um, and the reason it's a good question because I think that like a lot of uh, negative emotions, and I, my beginning of a definition would, of shame would be, be to say it's the root negative emotion. I, I'm saying that anger, jealousy, rage, you know, murder, at least in the, et, you know, the genealogy of shame that we're given in Scripture uh, is that all of these things flow out of the original negative emotion, and maybe even the word emotion is is too weak. But that's the the you know that it's actually a kind of holistic experience that is you know we experience it as a in the in the literature on shame you'll you'll see it defined as absence. You know that uh, somebody who's ashamed or is just controlled by shame, they can't be present for another person because to be present, they have to be vulnerable. They have to be, you know, in some way uh, authentic to the situation. So that I think that shame incapacitates our ability to love because we're so busy hiding we're so busy covering up that we can't be there for the other. And in contrast, I would say that's precisely what love is. Love is the capacity, love is being there for the other. Love is being present with the other. And that would be the thing that I would contrast with the postmodern notion of presence. You know, when, we, when they're thinking presence, they're thinking a kind of Cartesian notion of I'm I'm here in my head, you know. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Think real quick and you can some way obtain yourself. Well, what you have is a self that continually eludes the self. So how do we gain presence? Well, not through that idea of, you know, compulsively uh, 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 attaining, but rather through the presence of Christ, through the presence of the other which is not a consumptive presence, but it's this abiding presence of love. So shame, I think, in making itself, making us in some way hide. I don't want, I don't want you to know who I really am, because then you'd know how screwed up I am. And none of us want to do that, because that's, that in some way, you know, what we would do in our own identities is what the Tower of Babel people would do. They would make themselves invulnerable. I think that's precisely the way the law functions. The law functions as a kind of invulnerability, a false invulnerability. And so shame is the, the motive force behind that. This is more of a verbal process. So... I've been thinking about this a lot on my own, and so shame, like, I can think back to, like, you know, 
being in high school and getting in trouble with my dad and, like, just l being so ashamed, like, being, like, in a ball, like, him yelling at me because and feeling vulnerable and because I was being confronted with what was putting me to shame. So the issue with shame, I used the word vulnerable, like, I wrote it out, and I used the word vulnerable, like, you, I feel vulnerable, but the issue is more, I feel I like I can't be vulnerable, so if I'm ever in that position to be vulnerable, it's an issue, because you're exposed. Right. And so the issue isn't the vulnerability when confronted with shame that has been hidden. The issue is exposure, which makes you vulnerable. And then the vulnerability then causes anxiety, when vulnerability shouldn't cause anxiety. It should bring peace. Right, because gospel, or I mean, because Paul said, um, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, you know, talking yep. about despite all the mm -hmm. sin and death, mm -hmm. which, by the way, I wrote a blog post for Romans class, and I used your book, I, that was my reference. Oh, I'm sure they'll love that over. I also quoted Reese in it, so that I would, yeah. like, not fail. <laughs> yeah. That's literally it. Yeah. You can edit that out. <laughs> Oh no! Your your description, your depiction is beautiful. That that uh, with the idea that that what shame does, it's not so much a direct, um, uh, directly connected to either pride or vulnerability, but those may be the reaction. I mean, to it being in you know invulnerable. So I think that we get a whole construct. We get a whole uh, human personality types. Some of us are more controlled by shame than others, and there are clear signs of it. The clear signs are those who are, appear to be invulnerable. The person who would put such a front up that they can never be vulnerable, uh, which of course ultimately would be the total narcissist, who can't even be vulnerable within themselves, can't even admit to themselves. Uh, that what you're dealing with is somebody who's given their entire life over to being controlled by the powers of shame and resisting it. I mean, that's the that's what we're talking about is the, the shame, you cannot endure it. Literally, you cannot endure prolonged shame. It'll kill you in some way or another, or you'll kill somebody um, as a result. Because shame and death, in my mind, you know, this is the Old Testament, that the end of shame is the grave. Well, I think that, that the picture is that uh, prolonged shame and enduring shame uh, is something that we just, in some way, have to get rid of. And that's the, the thing that Scripture is doing. It's not in any way ignoring that because the resolution to the problem of shame is there in the picture of being clothed in Christ putting on white robes of righteousness uh, that it is not ignoring our need for clothing for identity it's just giving us an enduring identity whereas in our shame we would fabricate an identity, we would sew together our own covering uh, that in fact proves quite adequate, inadequate. I guess the, the, the covering of Adam and Eve were fairly adequate in front of one another, but when God comes on the scene, they both have to run and hide. Mm -hmm. And so that's the picture of shame as this total exposure. And unfortunately, in church, we often don't deal with that. We often, pre we often make church a kind of place where we all pretend, I'm okay, you're okay, none of us are, you know. And so what we do is aggravate the whole problem of shame. I think the, the invulnerability of the entire system is such that, you know, uh, that we, I think a lot of people just don't like church because it, it may in fact provoke feeling of shame.
uh, in the way that we picture God as kind of the big other, the lawgiver, the punishing father. That doesn't help your shame. That just aggravates it. Even if you have a doctrine of divine satisfaction. No, that doesn't, that doesn't help you because you're not dealing with it. So what you got to do is you got to recognize that the part of the deception in, is inclusive of our projection onto God and understanding that is false. God is not that punishing, you know, big other who would undo us in that in that sense. So uh, once we cry out, "Abba, Father," clothed in Christ, I think we're beginning. Then we're, we're coming into a. Uh, we're learning then not to be ashamed. There's a whole body of literature on shame, and it just, you can just, you, it, it's quite, unfortunately, it's not theological literature. There is very little in theology having to do pertaining to shame. You should write your next book on it. Well, maybe so. Uh, the, what little has come out, and I may, the guy, I've, his, his name may be Green, but he also was a missionary in Japan, which I find very interesting, that people have noticed this. We, we are so indoctrinated into notions of guilt as being our primary problem. I don't know where that, other than just, the again, it's the whole Western tradition, I think, that has put us there. Uh, so that, Shame is this universal problem, and by universal I mean it, it's involving all of who and what you are, and also universal in that it is an explanation. I really think you should write a book on it. <laughs> oh, okay. I really do, because I think it is an issue that there's not a lot of resources for, and you thought on. I think you should do that. I think you should pray about it. Okay. <laughs> you should pray about it. Oh. Are you trying to put me to shame? <laughs> uh, the, I almost did. I almost set out to do this. and uh, I mean, it's there a little bit in the work that I've done. I mean, the work that I've done has given rise to this understanding. It's not, uh, unfortunately, it's not, there's not a lot. The, that word in particular is not necessarily used in Lacan, but I think what Lacan is describing, in fact, is a shame construct. But, and what I mean by this, in shame, when I say holistic, I really mean this. I mean it in the way that Paul means it. That the I is itself, the ego, you know, there, the Greek, uh, is itself... Uh, in, in a sense, frustration, shame in its essence. The very constitution of our subjectivity is one that gives itself over to frustration and fear. As frustration and fear is not a problem outside of or that's put upon us. But I believe that frustration and fear is the thing that we are constituted as fallen subjects. <clears throat> and that's why shame then gets at this. Because literally, what, you, what are you afraid of? What are you so afraid of? Well, that you'll be undone. That, that, you know, that, that in a sense, you'll... You, you know, you just your whole self will fall apart. Um, that's what it shame is. What it feels like to fall apart. You know, that's the idea. I just I can't hold myself together. Well, the reason you can't hold yourself together is because you've glued yourself together in such a way that it's false. And so, when Paul says, "I have been crucified with Christ," it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives within me. That's the way that we're reconstituted as subjects that we're no longer dependent on holding ourselves together. We need to do this corporately. We need to, you know, once we're vulnerable with one another, we admit this to one another, we understand that I'm dependent, my identity's dependent on you and you're, you know, that we're interdependent. 
And our love for one another causes us then to either be healthy or unhealthy. I can't be healthy apart from a corporate identity that would make me healthy. I can't do it on my own. I need you to do this thing. I think once we say that and once we admit this, then we're all prepared to be healthy you know, individuals. This is why Christianity pertains to our mental health in profound ways, but we've left this out because we've imagined, oh, well, we got the guilt problem, we got that solved. No, you, you're, you're more screwed up than you can imagine. <laughs> and we need to admit that that's what Christ is addressing. And don't get the idea here that I, I always have to add this little warning. I'm not psychologizing or simply subjectivizing. I'm doing exactly the opposite. Our deep psychology is very much one that involves our corporate identity. That was you and I were discussing, Sharon, when you came in. I think was it you? Yeah, that, that you know, in a in a typical traditional psychology, what you get is uh, you know an examination. You know, tell me about your problems. Now you say your mother beat you with the wet rope and threw you in the closet. And, uh, sounds terrible, you know. As if going into your inside, we can in some way. But maybe your problem is not in you. Or maybe your problem is the way in which you've been so enculturated. Maybe your problem is your socialization. Maybe it's your whole, you know, it's a constructive identity. That's the idea.